Amen. Amen for that. All right, good evening. Uh, welcome to Bible study. Good to see y'all. Hope y'all had a good Christmas this past Sunday. Well, we were at church and and afterwards. Hope it was well for you and your families. Um, tonight we're continuing. Uh, we started last week in Deuteronomy six verses one through nine, and tonight we're going to uh, pick up where we left off, uh, beginning at verse ten. Um, so let's pray right quick and uh, seek the Lord, and then we'll go into our uh, study tonight. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, Bible study. Thank you, Lord, that as a church we've been consistent and persistent in meeting together um, on Wednesday nights uh, for Bible study uh, through these 12 years as a church. And, Lord, we just thank you for persevering us in doing this and that we continue to do it and we continue to not just study your word together but also to live out uh, what we study as we learn more about you and who you are your your person your nature your character uh, your attributes lord may you cultivate in us a desire for your word a desire to study your word uh, both individually and together and lord cultivate in us a desire to know you more uh, through the way the means in which you revealed yourself which is through your holy word Lord fill me with your spirit to teach well tonight this text as we go through it and Lord send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will learn about you tonight bless our time Lord and refresh us by your word in Christ's name amen so we did the first section of chapter 6 last week where we looked at the our greatest commandment and our main focus was on the fourth verse, the Shema, as we uh, talked about, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, uh, our God, the Lord is one. And uh, that they sh we should love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength and what they are to do. With those words, uh, the people of this time and also uh, the implications for us in our um, culture, in our context. And so now we get down to the part of the chapter where after this command is given, this is the greatest commandment. Uh, someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave this commandment back in verse 4, love the Lord your God. Uh, verse 5 rather with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength that is the greatest uh, commandment so now that we have this God is going to give uh, cautions against disobedience so we're going to read just a few verses here uh, beginning at chapter 10 and then we'll exposit them yes yeah, chapter 6 I'm sorry chapter 6 beginning at verse 10 and it says, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land. So the context of this passage is God is giving uh, instructions to them. Um, he's going to be leading his people into the land that uh, had been anticipated since the promise that was given to Abraham. And so God now is, after he established the foundational commandment in the Shema in verse 4 and 5. Uh, our attention now turns to the land that Israel is about to enter. And God is going to be giving them instructions 
for what to do as they prepare to uh, enter into the land. And one of the main things that they're called not to do, that is to forget the Lord. So I want to give that context as we read this. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things, of all good things rather, which you did not feel, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. We'll stop right there. Just look at those few verses. So throughout Israel's history, as we read through this book and you read through the other Old Testament books, this cycle will be repeated throughout the history of Israel. Uh, where, especially in the book of Judges, where God blesses Israel and then they would prosper. And then what would they do? They will set their hearts on their blessings instead of on the Lord. And then God will punish them. And then they would return to God. They will renew their covenant with him. And God will prosper them. And in this prosperity, they will forget the Lord. And the Lord will judge them. And then they will come back to the Lord. And then the same cycle, wash, rinse, and repeat. So we see the beginnings of this in this section right here. So first, it starts off with God calling them to not forget. Not forget. So, he's preparing them for facing future temptation. God knows all things. God knows the hearts of sinful man. He knows the temptations that they will face. So the first thing he talks about is delighting in his grace. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore, to your fathers basically to give you large and beautiful cities um, that you did not build houses full of good things that you did not fill wells that you didn't dig vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant when you have eaten and are full so they're called to delight in God's grace and these are the rich blessings of the promised land that he's given them and notice it is God who gave these promises, who gave these good things to them. They didn't do anything. It says, bring into the land which he swore to your fathers. That means, you know, God swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God is the one who made the promise. And as we know, uh, God, he made the promise. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to fulfill it. Now, the people can never treat the land and what it provides for them as their own possession because it's a gift from God. This land came from God. So guess what? They're stewards. 
And this points us to the principle of stewardship. The Bible tells us, I think in the book of James, that every good thing and every perfect thing comes from above. From the father of lights. With whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. In other words, there's no, there's no change with God. There's no meandering with him. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. And if you think about the concept of a gift, a gift is something that you don't earn. Think we just left the Christmas season, right? We give gifts to people. Now, in a general sense, you don't give gifts to people because they earn them. You give it to them because you love them. That's typically what a gift is supposed to be about. You, you don't do it to, to bribe somebody or anything like that. You know, that, that gift is given out of love, your appreciation for a person, whatever the case may be, uh, based on something that they, they did not do to earn it. You give the gift anyway. I mean, how, how many parents give gifts to their children no matter how bad they are? They still give them gifts, right? You know what I'm saying? Because you're bad, I'm not going to give you anything for Christmas. Some parents probably do that. But you know, they still give them stuff throughout the year. So basically the same thing. But a gift is something that is given to you. And once that gift is given to you, you have the responsibility of stewardship of that gift. Okay? That's what it's about. That's the concept. The gift is supposed to be received well and to be stewarded well. I use this illustration like my, my dad one time, I think it was my 16th birthday, maybe 17th birthday. He gave me $100 uh, for my birthday, which was a lot of money back then. I mean, it still is now, but this was back in what, 87, 88, something like that. My dad gave me $100 for my birthday. And he just, you know, happy birthday, son, gave me $100. This fool, meaning me, I went to the mall in Auburn, Village Mall, went to Foot Locker and bought some $90 shoes, uh, um, some Dominique Wilkins books. I bought some $90 tennis shoes. And, and, you know, a little while after that, my dad asked me, and I bought some socks to go with it, kind of round it out. And my dad asked me, like, sometime later, son, what'd you do with that money I gave? <laughs> I said, I went and bought some tennis shoes. He asked me how much they cost. Um, I said $90 and, you know, he spoke to me with some very colorful language that I can't repeat here. But basically told me I was stupid, you know, for going out and using that $100 to buy a $90 pair of shoes. Like, that. in other words, he was saying that wasn't a good way to steward that money, that I could have bought more things with that than just buying one pair of shoes or whatever. That cost almost the whole thing. So when you think about giving a gift to somebody, you give it to them in hopes that they will steward it well. So this promised land was a gift to Israel based on the covenant that God made with their, their forefathers. So the people can never treat the land and what it provided for them uh, as their own possession because it didn't belong to them because it says, uh, again, the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. So God has given them a land that's basically already ready for them. And it is facilitated by God's grace rather than by Israel's labors. Cities, great and splendid cities which you do not build. What else is it going to have in it? Houses. Houses full of all good things which you did not fill. What else is it going to give them? Cisterns of water or wells which you did not dig. 
You know, they didn't have indoor plumbing back then, so they had to get water from wells. And also vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. So everything that they're going to receive in this promised land is a what? It's a gift. It's facilitated by God's grace rather than by Israel's labors. And remember, this promised land is a picture of heaven. Never lose that. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 14? I am going to prepare a place for you. Heaven is prepared already for us. Just like this promised land is prepared for Israel. They have what? The cities, they have the houses, they have the wells, and they have the vineyards and the orchids for the olive trees. They, they, it is already, it's a land already prepared for them by God. Just as our promised land, heaven, has already been prepared for us. Uh, Jesus is not up there making renovations right now. No, heaven has already been uh, prepared for us. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you uh, that where I am, you may be there also. In, this, in, in you know, my father's house, there are many rooms. The mansion is already there. So it's already prepared. So this promised land already prepared points to that. So we see in these couple of verses here the rich blessing of, of God's provision for his people. Large and fine cities. And houses that have everything good. Again, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from God. God only gives his children the best. And everything that comes from God is good. And he's not just giving them any land. He's giving them great land. Great and splendid cities. And the New King James says large and beautiful cities. Same thing. So God is giving his, his people what? The best of things. All the work is done. All the work is done. They didn't have to go and dig wells. And I'm sure that, man, digging a well is not an easy task. If you don't have a, a backhoe. <laughs> you know, they didn't have backhoes back then. You got to dig that job with, with shovels by hand. But it was already done for them. And this shows the wonders of God's grace and salvation. God did all the work by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place for our sins. He did the work. All we're called to do is repent and believe. We don't have to do works in order to be saved. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. The gift of faith. Faith is the gift of God. God gives us the faith to believe. We don't muster up that faith within ourselves. God gives us the faith to believe. So we think about how God's grace works. So this promised land, everything that they have is uh, facilitated by God's grace. And not only that, God will fulfill their appetite. The last part of verse 11 says, and you shall eat and be full or satisfied. Satisfaction only comes through God. True satisfaction. True satisfaction of the gifts of God comes from God. I'm sorry. True satisfaction comes from the gifts of God. That's where we receive true satisfaction.
We don't see true satisfaction by trying to do it ourselves. No, we rest in what God has done for us. And that's what Israel is saying here. God did all this when you have eaten and are full. So, God gives them all this prosperity, but he does it with a warning. He does it with a warning. Why? In prosperity, it's easy to forget God. It just is. We're sinners. That's why wealth ruins a lot of people. I don't know my heart if I win a hundred million dollars. I can't say with certainty that I wouldn't forget God. I would think that I wouldn't. But there will be a mighty big test. Because guess what? All your bills are paid. You don't have to worry about money. And what can happen in that prosperity? You can forget God. It can just take your heart away. The, the deceitfulness of riches. It can do that. It rules a lot of people. We can easily forget God when, when we have, and not just even that kind of prosperity, but just when things seem to be going well in our life, we can, you know, I'm good. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to pray. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to be around the saints. I'm, I'm good. Got a nice job, nice house, whatever the case, whatever it may be. In a good relationship, whatever. Prosperity can cause us to do what? Forget God. So this is why God, after he says that, after, you're, after you've eaten and you're full, look at verse 12, beware, beware, when you have prosperity, beware, that's what he's telling Israel, when you prosper, when you get into this land, beware, man, excuse me. We're so prone. God has to warn us. When you receive prosperity, beware. That means danger. Look out. Watch out. Be careful. Why? Lest. The word lest means for fear that. That's what it means. So you see the word L-E-S-T, lest means uh, for fear that. So you say, beware for fear that you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. From the house of what? Bondage. So, he says, he gives his all, give them all this prosperity. Then he tells them, watch yourself. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be careful. That you enter not to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He told the disciples that in the garden when he went out to pray for an hour and came back and they were asleep. He said, can you not tarry with me for one hour? Can you not wait for me for one hour? And that's when he told him, do what? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is is weak. That's in um, 
turn to that right quick. This is in Matthew's gospel, I think, when he was praying in the garden. In Matthew twenty, yeah, Matthew twenty six, verse forty. This is kind of in, in the middle of it because Jesus sought the Lord three times in prayer. So looking at verse thirty nine says, uh, "He Jesus went to the Father and fell on his face." And pray, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them doing what? Sleeping. And said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Then what do you see next? Watch and pray, lest you enter into what? Temptation. Yep, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. So looking at what God told Israel here, beware, watch, be careful. Lest you what? Forget. That's something that we diligently have to do because we can easily forget God. Not only forget God, but forget the things of God. We can easily do that. We can easily get comfortable and forget the very things of God. The very things that belong to God. We can forget his church. We can forget the means of grace that he's given us. Prayer, scripture reading, fellowship with the saints, participating in the communion. We can forget all those things. And the, the focus of attention here is on the realization that the material wealth they're about to possess is a gift from God, but it is not meant to take them away from God. The blessings of God should lead to the worship of God, not the forgetting of God. I'll say that again. The blessings of God should lead to the worship of God, not the forgetting of God. You have a lot of people walking around here saying that they're blessed. And they'll acknowledge. They're not even believers. You have rappers and celebrities and stuff. They'll say, man, God is really blessing me. As if they did something right. No. Those blessings of God, the goodness of God, Paul says in Romans 2, leads to repentance. Why does God bless the unjust? So that they may what? Repent. Turn to him in worship. Not so that they can forget him more. So God was warning not to forget that the land and his blessings come as a gift. And don't forsake that gift. Don't step away from the gift. Don't, don't be tempted to forget God. Because what would happen? Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. 
So instead of forgetting God, you to do what? Fear Him and worship Him. One theologian said, forgetting the Lord is the first peril or danger to which prosperity leads us. Forgetting the Lord is the first peril to which prosperity leads us. The first thing prosperity does is leads us to forget the Lord. And being independent is one of the greatest things that dulls our dependence on God. Is when we think, man, I made it. I did all this myself. You hear about these self-made people? They, they, they say they're self-made. A self-made millionaire. As if they did it all by themselves. That is so powerful. No, it's God who gave you the ability to do that. Prosperity can be intoxicating. And that's what God is warning Israel against. So instead of forgetting God, they should fear him alone. So he begins with the negative. Lest you forget the Lord. And then the positive, you shall fear him. So as opposed to forgetting God, you should do what? Fear him. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You should fear him and serve him. And shall take oaths in his name. So the only way basically Israel was to maintain and function as his nation is to fear him and to worship him. That's the only way they could properly function. They can't properly function by forgetting him. And when he says you shall um, take oaths or swear in his name, that is basically an expression of, of loyalty to God. And recognizing him as God. Recognizing him as the only supreme authority. That's what that means. Where it says you shall take oaths in his name. That means you are. You are pledging. Basically pledging allegiance to God. Because a true worshiper of Yahweh. Is one. Who swore by his name. One scripture here that. I think is in Psalm 63. The psalmist says, I think Psalm 63 and 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. So everyone who swear by him, everyone who's loyal to him. That's what swear when you when you're making when you're swearing, you're, you're, you're making a vow of loyalty. And in this case you're making a vow of loyalty uh, to God. So when God says here in this passage, take oaths in his name, you're swearing, you're pledging allegiance and loyalty to him. So instead of forgetting God, you do what? You, 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 you become loyal to him because forgetting God shows what? Disloyalty. You're betraying God. You're committing treason against God if you're forgetting him. Especially since he 
gave you this land as a gift. He showed his grace to you. And instead of you reciprocating that grace by worshiping him, you basically spit in his face and forget him. That's basically what a person is doing when they forget God there. They're basically spitting in his face. Then he gets back to a negative again, verse 14. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are all around you. Why? For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. And there's that word again, lest or for fear that the anger of the Lord, your God will be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Ouch. God was keeping them from self-sufficiency and leading them to worship him. When it says here, you should not go after to go after means basically to follow after. And the follow after uh, indicates a wholehearted commitment. So when he says you should not go after other gods, you should not make a, a wholehearted commitment of your entire life to gods. Now that doesn't mean that you can worship false gods a little bit and then worship God. No, because you can't do both things. You can't serve two masters. As, as Jesus said, you will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You, you can't worship God and worship idols a little bit. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping false gods, small g gods. So God is saying, don't go after them. Don't follow after them. And this is clearly a rephrasing of the very first commandment. The first commandment says what? You should have no other gods before me. So that's basically what God is reiterating to them. And jealous God reverts back to the second commandment. That God is a jealous God. He alone is worthy of what? Worship. He alone is worthy of worship. To sin in such a way is to forget God. That's why he was saying, don't follow after other gods and any other gods of the people who surround you. Remember, Israel was traveling through other nations. They were going to possess a land that had other nations in them. And don't provoke God to jealousy. For the Lord your God is in the midst, in the midst of you as a jealous God. And also under this, don't stir up God's what? Anger. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you. So what happens when you go into idolatry? You stir up God's anger. And he was telling Israel here, don't do that. Because if so, they're bringing themselves under, under danger of being kicked out of the land, which is exactly what's going to happen. Okay. But he's warning them beforehand to not, to not do that. Don't go after these other gods. Why? Because my anger is going to be aroused against you. 
And then what's going to happen as a result of that? You're going to be taken out of the land. And he says, you should not tempt the Lord to God. Verse 16, just read these next few verses. Uh, as you tempted him in Massah, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. And that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord your God swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. So they're not to test God. What, what does it mean to test God or to tempt God? It, it means to make upon God demands of requirements that are inappropriate. Don't test the Lord. Don't put the Lord to the test. By trying to basically, in some sense, put God in a hard spot to, to question whether or not God was, is, is with you. You know, you're, you're, you're putting the Lord to the test. And Israel had tested God um, when uh, he was displeased at their Carnality, I think it was in Exodus 15. Let's look at that right quick. Exodus 15, kind of go back and refresh our memory here. Uh, this is what happened when they put the Lord to the test. So we go back to the Exodus account. This was not too long after they came out of uh, Egypt. In that verse 23 here, this is after the song of Miriam. The waters were bitter. Exodus 15:22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the Lord and the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree where he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Then he made a statue and ordinance to them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So this is uh, the way God provided for them. Now, that was the good thing that happened. God gave them a supply of water and made that water sweet. But what happened in uh, Massah was different. So now you look at, um, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 10. When he talked about not tempting the Lord. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and 9. And Paul talked about this when he talked about uh, temptation and idolatry. He referenced the same thing. So, so, so that was a very uh, significant part of Israel's history. Old Testament examples. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted 
and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this happened in Exodus, the 17th chapter. Okay. Uh, and also in the book of um, Numbers, I'm sorry, it was Numbers 21. Look at Numbers 21. I know we're going back and forth, but we're doing this to, to look at what it means to tempt God. So look at Numbers 21. It's 21 and. This is when they tempted the Lord. 21 and 6. Well. Begin at verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor. By the way of the Red Sea. To go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. And the people spoke against God. They were tempting God. And against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. You know, it was the manna. <laughs> so the Lord sent fire serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So how did they tempt God? By speaking against him and speaking against Moses. They were Tempting the Lord. They were putting the Lord to the test by doing that. So that's what it means. To tempt the Lord. To speak against him. And that's what they did. And that was their, their sin. And Moses. Here in Deuteronomy was warning them. Against doing that. So that's what is meant by. Tempting God. And that's when they tempted him. So instead of tempting God, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 6, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God instead. So what we see again is obedience is what pleases the Lord. His testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you. Again, we talked about this before. There are blessings that come with obedience. There are general blessings that come with it. Do what is right and good, people. That's what God was telling Israel. And right, when you think about the word right, you think about something uh, that is straight, something that is constructed as a norm, something that is normal. You think about proper behavior, something that is right. There is right behavior and there's wrong behavior. So for Israel, it was, it was uh, abiding by the, the, the strict uh, standard of the Torah, the, the, the laws. So when we talk about something that is right, we're talking about something that is normal, a norm of proper behavior. So God was telling them, do what is right and good in the sight of God that it may be what well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord your, the God your fathers has given you so so what does that mean what, what, what does this imply that failure to meet these conditions will result in what judgment because he said God's going to drive out all the enemies from before them but if they don't obey the Lord 
It will not go well with them. They will not go in and possess the land. And he will not drive out all their enemies. That's the implications of that. So if you obey, guess what? It's going to go well with you. You will go in and possess the land. And you will drive out all the enemies. If it doesn't, if you don't obey God, then guess what? It's not going to go well with you. Think about our culture. Think about our context. When we rebel against God, when man rebels against God, it is not going to go well with man. I was talking with the lady down at the salon a little bit earlier this evening about the nature of sin. Uh, I talked about this Sunday that sin doesn't relent. Sin doesn't let up. Sin will finish you. The wages of sin is death. People never hit rock bottom. There's no such thing. If you do what is right, it will go well with you. If you live a life of sin, guess what? It's not going to go well with you. It never will. You can't build a world while, while rejecting the very God who created the world and expect everything to go well. It's just not going to happen. It can't happen. It can't work because it won't work. And that's true of people doing now. People who reject God, who refuse to obey him, they're still trying to build a world while at the same time rejecting the God who created the world. It's not going to go well. As Emily once said, it's Christ or chaos. If you don't obey God, it's going to be chaos. It's going to always be chaos. So, in this context, Israel's failure to meet these conditions of obedience will mean that none of this will go well for them. And that's what Moses was telling them. And so now we get down to verse 20 toward the end of this chapter. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, this is basically telling the history of Israel, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in to give us a land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments which the Lord our God as he, I'm sorry, commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Hmm. So, this is teaching the younger generation the covenant responsibility. Remember the, uh, the Shema back in verse 4, verse 5, and then verse 7, you shall teach them to your children. Talk with them when you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. It was all about teaching the next generation. And I said this last week, that's what we're tasked to do. Hey, whether they hear it or not, well, hear it meaning receive it. 
You still tell them, this is what God requires of you, son. This is what God requires of you, daughter, uh, grandson, granddaughter, niece, nephew. Especially if you got nieces and nephews who, who, who are not in the Lord and don't go to church and their parents don't go to church. Guess what? We teach them what God requires of them. Because they are going to have to give an account. They're going to have to give an account. So we teach them, this is what God requires of you. If you do this, it will go well with you. Now, I don't mean that you would never have trouble in your life and all that. That's not what that means. But what it means is, you have a general, uh, what did I say, a good welfare of life. Quality of life, that's what I'm looking for. You have a better quality of life if you live according to God's standard. Again, look at the chaos in our world. You can trace it back to the rejection of God. Look at the chaos now in, 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 in communities. Birmingham, this is past weekend, there are four people, I mean, three people shot and killed. Birmingham is up to 134 homicides this year. Yeah, we still got three days left in the year. That's almost three a week. Why? You reject God. You don't value life. This is what happens. We have chaos. You have people mutilating their bodies to believe the lie that they can become the opposite sex. They're destroying their lives. They're destroying their fertility. And a lot of them are living with regret. Why? Because they have rejected God's standard. Friends, you cannot reject God's standard and not have chaos. You can't. Open your eyes. You see it in the world every day. There are consequences that come with disobeying God. There are consequences that come with doing things against God's design. And that's what we see in our world. That's what we see in our nation. That's what we see in our cities. That's what we see in our families. You see chaos. Because we're not teaching our children. Again, when the children, when the son asks, what do the uh, statutes and uh, testimonies and statutes and judgments mean? They do mean something. Why does God have all these commands for us? Because they would do you good. In man's sinfulness, man says, I don't, I don't need all those commands. I'm, I'm, I'm free. I, I should be able to live however I want to. I mean, you can. But there are consequences that come with that. We say, son, we have these commandments because they're good for you. Because God loves you. And he knows what's best for you because he created you. He made you. He designed this world a certain way to work. He designed this world a certain way to operate. There's only one designer, and that's God. We're not the designer of this world. We're not even the designer of our own world. God is. When we try to be 
the instrument of our own design, that's when chaos comes in. So, we look at these commands, and as Christians, we can't look at them as bad or, or restrictive or anything like that. We, we must say, hey, these are for our good. And so what God was doing, he was telling them to connect the experience of the past redemption that they had with the present uh, prosperity. So they, 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 they taught the children, what do you suppose, suppose tell them? We were slaves. And if you look, as I was reading this, I was thinking, one thing stood out to me. God, 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 God did it all. Look at what it says. We were slaves found Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? The Lord. Not only did he bring them out, but he brought them out with the what? Mighty hand. Next verse. The Lord showed what? Signs and wonders. Those ten plagues. Before our eyes. Great and severe against Egypt. And Pharaoh and all his household. And then who brought us out from there? He. God. Jehovah. Yahweh. So first they were bound to Pharaoh. And then they were delivered with the mighty hand. The hand of Yahweh. And then he brought them into the land that he swore to their fathers. And then verse 24, the Lord commanded us. He established himself as their Lord so that they might obey his laws. So in this, God became their righteous ruler and their sovereign. He became their only ruler. And they are under his kingly rule. They are free and they are unchained. And they are in his kingdom. The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God for our, our good always. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. So that's what we see here. God established himself as their Lord. As their sovereign. As their righteous ruler. That's what you're to tell your children. We were in slavery and God set us free from that slavery to Egypt, which is basically our slavery to sin. Christ came to do what? Set us free from slavery to sin. From slavery to unrighteousness. That redemption that Israel experienced is the redemption that we experience in Christ. We Before Christ, before we were saved, guess what? The Bible tells us we were slaves to unrighteousness. We were slaves to sin. But what did Christ come to do? He came to redeem us from slavery to sin. And to redeem us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us as we've been studying in the book of Galatians. So Christ came to set us free from slavery just as God redeemed his people from Egypt with a mighty hand. And God redeemed us from the slavery to sin by the mighty hand of salvation in Jesus Christ.
That's how this points to the gospel. And why did he bring them out? In order to bring them into the land which he had swore to their fathers. He, he will preserve them alive. I'm at the end of verse 24. Then it will be righteousness for us. If. So that's the condition. That's the condition. It will be righteousness for us. Again. It will go well for them. If. If is a conditional word. It's a conditional preposition. If what? We are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. If. If, if, if. So that's what they'll tell the children. Next generation. If you obey God, then guess what? It will go well. If we do or observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. A question, couple of questions here as we get ready to end. Just something to think about. How easy is it to imagine that our own efforts and good works lead to whatever we find ourselves enjoying? It's really easy, isn't it? It's easy for us to imagine that our own efforts and our own good works lead to the prosperity that we may have. It's easy for us to say, what? I did that. It's because of my hard work. It's because I worked hard. It's easy for us to do that. To say, I. Well, it is God who does it. Now, we participate in it in a sense, but who gives us the desire to even work hard? God does. Who gives us the desire to do well? God. Who gives us the ability to work? God. So ultimately, it's God. Ultimately, we can't take credit for it. Another question to think about is under what circumstances are we tempted to forget God and go our own way? I would say when things go well for us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as Fred said, we, we feel like we got everything going on. So we can easily forget God. And the last thing to think about is we capital we have to capitalize on teaching moments with our younger generation. Teaching them what the Lord requires, showing them how that's good for them. Showing them why it's good for them to obey the Lord. They have to know people. Look, this is what happens when you obey God. It would generally go well with you. And for you. So that's something we must do. Carry on that torch. Amen.
Let us pray as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us commands, commandments to follow. Help us, Lord, to obey your word faithfully and to teach it to our children. In Christ's name, amen.